0: Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover Salem's Lot, Part 3, Chapter 14. Sections 1 through 24. Let's start the show! Salem's Lot is Dead. The section starts with a
1: full understanding of how far the vampirism has spread. Ben and Mark finally meet, but under the darkness of Susan's turning. Together, the group has a plan, but Barlow is a step ahead of them, and Ben must destroy Susan. Barlow escalates the situation by killing Mark's parents and facing off against Callahan while sending Ann Norton to deal with the rest of the group. It's, it's a rough it's a rough point in the story here. It is. I started that off with Salem's Lot is Dead, and I was just listening to episode 73 of our show, Jay, and we spent a lot of time talking about how Salem's Lot is alive and how it seems like such a vibrant place that we can totally understand. And There's so many things going on as we look in on different parts of the town to see what everyone's doing and what everyone's up to. And that is somewhat mirrored at the beginning of this section with the exact opposite effect, as we see the residents of Salem's Lot curled up in dark places throughout the town, and in root cellars, and under
0: floorboards, and with shades drawn, and Salem's Lot is truly dead. It's more like undead, because once the sun goes down, the town is probably just as active as ever, right? It's a happening place after dark. Oh yeah, it's just... Moving and shaking, right?
1: Yeah, and we start this section off with a number of epigraphs. The first, and this is Stephen King showing off his rock and roll roots. The first is Endless Sleep, which he lists as an old rock and roll tune, and it's been covered by numerous people over the years. And Endless Sleep, obviously, refers to the undead.
0: I heard a voice crying in the deep.
2: Join me, baby, in my sleep.
1: The second epigraph is from Edgar Allan Poe, the short story The Haunted Palace. And then the third is from Bob Dylan's North Country Blues,
2: Tell You Now That The Whole
1: Town Is Empty. That the whole town is empty.
0: Mm, Quite fitting.
1: I thought the, the first one was pretty interesting. It's an old rock and roll song. I heard a voice crying from the deep, come join me, baby, in my endless sleep. And it's one of these tragedy songs that was so big in the 50s. All of this ties together to really emphasize the fact that Salem's Lot is no longer the town we thought it was. And it has been totally infected and infested by, by vampires, and there's really no turning back.
0: Yeah, there definitely is, is no turning back. I mean, I found this really awesome vampire apocalypse calculator online. It's from omnicalculator.com. And it lets you set all these parameters, and including the type of vampire model that we're playing with. And One of the choices is the Stoker-King model, because King so closely used to Bram Stoker in this story that they're effectively the same here in in how vampires spread their vampirism. Mm. So you put in things like the population of humans, the number of vampires, how aggressive the vampires are, and how people are changed into vampires, and then it does a calculation for you, and it tells you basically how long before the number of vampires outweighs the number of humans, and then how long until there are zero humans and everybody's a vampire trying to as closely mirror the information we have from salem's lot like the number of people etc it looks like there will be the same number of humans and vampires after 0.82 months and then there will be effectively zero people after about 1.6 months
1: we're looking at a six-week time frame, basically, for yeah for this to turn, which, for what we've seen so far, I mean, I don't have an exact number of days we're in through the book, but I can't imagine it's more than two weeks from when from when Ben and Barlow and, and Straker all sort of got to town around the same time. Mm-hmm. Things have escalated very, very quickly from the time that, the Glick Boy was sacrificed and then within a couple of days there's more and more. His mom dies, there's an attack. So like we're not very far at all. No nope. into this. And it does seem to be moving very quickly. So I'm guessing that King didn't have any sort of fancy spreadsheets that he put together to to figure out this. But he, he seems to have fallen on, on it fairly close.
0: Yeah, and it's not hard to imagine that if one vampire makes two vampires, and two vampires make four vampires, and they tell three friends, and they tell three <laughs> friends, it's gonna be all vampires left, you know, you know, wall to wall vampires, and not too uh, much time. So, I'll put the the link to the specs that I cobbled together uh, in the show notes for this episode, and feel free to monkey with those yourself uh, as you're listening to the episode. Yeah, and as you do your homage
1: to a vampire fiction, you can create your own time frame of how quickly you want your human population to keel off and die.
0: And if you come up with a, a more accurate answer because you have like 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 you've caught different details that than we have, please feel free to send us an email to two at gmail dot Love to hear from you.
1: That was a cool find, Jay. Thanks for sharing that. So we're sort of at a point where And King makes this clear through his metaphors that this is a chess game between the vampire hunters, as we're calling them, Ben and his crew, and Barlow. I think it's probably Matt Burke who brings it up most, saying like, oh, this is a chess game, and he's, he's trying to stay ahead of us, and all the pieces are on the board now. And it's unclear who's got the edge at this point. We start to think that perhaps our vampire hunter heroes have the edge. You know, they've gotten a good idea of what's happening and they're, they're on the prowl. They know they've got some tools, right? They know they've, they've got crosses and holy water that that could be useful. And as Matt tells them, like you've pushed them out of his house. Barlow doesn't have the Markson house to stay in anymore. He's he's gone. But I think that Ben thinks that they're sort of not in good shape because he had to kill Susan. But then Matt comes back and is like, Hey, but you, but but guess what that's good he wouldn't have just given up one of his thrall that easily so good good job by you yeah so there's this back and forth and it's
0: unclear who's besting whom at this point i mean do you have a sense of who's ahead here at the conclusion of the section of the book that we're covering here i kind of feel like vampires are are ahead in the game there are far more vampires than there are people trying to hunt the vampires the head vampire the one who seems to have some sort of psychic control over all of the others is really, really intelligent and very old and very wise, and he's probably not going to make too many mistakes. So the one mistake he made was perhaps underestimating how determined Mark Petrie was yeah. and how kind of instinctively aware Mark was already of like what kind of danger he was going into and what he was facing. That's probably Barlow's biggest blunder. Although that was
1: more Straker's problem probably than Barlow's at first, right? Because it was during the day, Straker threw him in a room and didn't really tie him up and get him under control as best he should have. while well, Giving Petrie a chance to get out.
0: Yeah, he gave him the time, but I not many people could have escaped those knots the way that Mark True. did because he read that article about Houdini. Yes. He was able to probably do something that's impossible for most vampire victims. But this started off with like, all right, the gang's getting together. We're making stakes. We know we have the advantage of being able to move about in the daylight and that the vampires can't fight back during the day. All we need to do is find them and destroy them in their lairs. But before they can even all come together and truly acknowledge, like there are still a few holdouts in their group that are like, are they really vampires though? Callahan is like, brings the force of the whole Catholic church to the team. And he's sort of like, I'm going to humor these, you know, kind of not with it people here. And I'll just play nice because that's what I do. I just try to comfort people. Callahan's taken off the board in this section of the book. And Susan is turned into a vampire and then destroyed even before that, Barlow's smart enough to know, like, I'm going to go buy up all the roses
1: in town yep, and even a couple of towns over, and, and this is going to slow them down. And Ben and Dr. Cody are like, he's delaying us on purpose. Like we're running around trying to be, get to the perfect situation. We're not going to have it. Let's just go and, and get in there. Barlow leaves that smug letter, which is just fantastic. Yeah. Of like, oh yeah, I knew you're going to do this. And I knew you're going to do that. And here's how I'm going to handle this. And you're all going to be doomed.
0: And oh, by the way, I left a little present for you downstairs. Now, Imagine if the Crimson King had been more like Barlow. Oh, yeah. How much better of a villain would he have been? Yes. Instead, we get, te hee 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 ha You can't get me. I'm the Crimson King.
1: <laughs> we'll talk a little bit about the destruction of Susan here in a minute. But as you mentioned, like Callahan's taken off the board. And they have done what, as I have learned in decades of playing Dungeons and Dragons, you never do, and that is you do not split up the party. You all stay together. Mm-hmm. They split them up. They put Callahan and, and Mark, they go off to talk to the parents while everyone else is sticking around, and as soon as you do that, they start picking you off one by one. Never split the party. We get this metaphor of the chess game put right in front of us, and a little bit of this is will be in our Dark Tower Thinnies later, but Callahan is called the White. Mm. And so, you know, it's this chess, like white against black, good against evil, and, and it's right there. I'm going to tend to agree with you that Barlow, with 2,000 plus years of history on his side, is probably winning this chess game right now.
0: You know, that's interesting. I have been so steeped in the Stephen King universe, white, as the power for good, is the power against all the evil and darkness in his universe, that I wasn't even thinking of the much simpler metaphor of the chess Board colors yes. of white and black. <laughs> Duh. When you
1: and I were prepping for this episode and you said Barlow has taken a, a knight off the, the table or a rook off the table when we were talking about Callahan, but I had to mention that it's probably more like a bishop, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd say that's the best chess piece to
1: represent Callahan. <laughs> so we should probably take a minute just to talk about the destruction of Susan. Yeah. We barely got to know you, right? Unfortunately, you fell victim to the.
0: You're a female character, so we're gonna we're gonna basically fridge you almost. Well, it's more like the the curious case of the character named Susan. I mean, every time. Yeah.
1: Hey, let's move the main character's uh, pathos along a little bit by killing off his girlfriend Susan. Yep. But that is one of two horrific scenes in this section. Yeah. When they have to do it, and they force Ben to do it because, according to matt burke's lore like the husband has to be the one to do it i'm not as quite familiar with that piece of vampire lore but like hey did you have sex with her once well then you're close enough to a husband yeah
0: i hate to ask this of you ben but have you slept with her because if so you're gonna have to be the
1: one to put the stake into the heart and ben doesn't even recall doing it to some extent like he's able to put it all together but he's not sure who puts the stake in his hand and who gives him the hammer but he goes through with it and it is just this gory terrible scene of blood basically everywhere after that we skip over but we get told what happens after that which is basically bloody ben goes outside and throws up while meanwhile cody and callahan take her body put the garlic in turn her upside down put it in a crate get the crate put her in a car drive the car outside of town throw her in a running river and leave straker's car out there so that he'll be
0: uh pinned for it all of which is somehow seen by Parkins Gillespie through his binoculars. Like, yeah, I'm watching some really sick stuff going on at the Marston house, but I'm not getting involved. Yeah. yeah. It's weird because
1: they spent all that time talking about we're looking for garlic, we're looking for steaks, we're looking for the roses. And we are like, we're running out of time. It's going to be dark before you know it. Mm-hmm. They can actually see the shadows are changing and it's getting dark. And they go in the house and They must have gotten that body prepped and taken care of pretty darn quick because all of a sudden they're back at the hospital before sundown.
0: Yeah, like they were as practicing body disposal as the characters on The Americans. (laughs) What? All we have is a suitcase? Not a problem. I have an idea. We can make it happen. (laughs) You know, there's one thing, though, when we were getting the detailed, gory description of the stake through the heart, it made me kind of think of like Of all the vampire lore and stories and movies and TV shows that I have watched and read, all the vampires seem to universally be susceptible to a stake Mm. through the heart. But it's like to varying degrees. In this case, Ben had to use the hammer. He had to strike multiple blows before Susan the vampire even started to react. Mm. And then he had to continue striking the stake and driving it deeper and deeper into her heart and once it finally pierced her heart then he vanquished the magic of the vampire that was you know occupying her undead body gouts of blood screeches of undying horror etc but at the end of the day it was still like this really laborious thing yeah. like it was hard work and gruesome work but i've seen like other things like true blood as soon as you Gently touch a vampire with a stake, they just burst into a ball of goo and spray, you know, vampire smutch all <laughs> over the place. How is there such a wide variation in, in what happens to vampires? And like if you're a vampire in the true blood universe and you're walking around on a wood floor in your bare feet and you get a splinter, do you just burst into goo? Right. Like <laughs> you'd perpetually be in fear of, of splinters. But here. Here it's like, nope, I gotta I gotta hammer away like John Henry digging a tunnel <laughs> for an hour until until the uh the blood just shoots to the ceiling and coats everybody in
2: sight.
0: Well, here's my scientific explanation. Susan is
1: fairly new on dead. Uh, she's only been for like a day. Yeah. And she just fed. She's sort of like a mosquito that just filled with all this blood and she's still mostly alive and not mostly undead so maybe that's part of it yeah she was only mostly dead when he started to tap it she said to
2: blame
1: <laughs> <laughs> which as we all know means to bluff anyhow it was definitely a disturbing scene i know we're, we're making fun of it but that's just because it's so horrific
0: yeah it's way over the top horrific
1: and then the chess game continues, as we talked about, with them splitting the party inexplicably so that Mark and Callahan can go to Mark's parents and say, hey, come with us. There's vampires around and we're going to tell you. And Mark's dad will have none of it. Nope. He's like, yeah, I'm an accountant. I'm in economics. I'm a fact-based guy. Whatever you say, I'm not believing it. And at that point, the lights go off, the phone gets cut and then we get this weird back and forth of like we don't see everything that happens but then all of a sudden like barlow's in there he bursts through the window the parents are dead in a second like mark's like sort of piecing together like strobe light fashion what happened Mm. barlow and calhan are facing off over the dead bodies of mark's parents and barlow's got mark as a hostage and this is where we get the downfall of Callahan that we've known about now for months, years, because we read The Dark Tower. Right. We've already heard this story, but now we're seeing it live and in person.
0: Mm-hmm. It's pretty upsetting. As you just said, we're, we're watching it happen from a third-person point of view here, but we got to live it from Callahan's perspective. Hear in his own words how horrible this was and, and what he lived through as a result of it and for how long he had to deal with that. So watching it happen, like I'm reading this and I'm saying, no, no, Callahan, you're doing it wrong. He has the power to vanquish or at least cast Barlow away yep. in that moment. And he sees it. He knows it. And then he feels that there's this bargain he's made with a vampire. He calls it the vampire's bargain. And he decides not to violate that bargain for fear that it could be consequences beyond his imagination. Something worse than death, right? Right. And turns out, I think he ended up getting those very consequences. Yeah. Barlow did not kill him. Barlow did not turn him into a vampire. Barlow did a third thing to him that was the worst thing that he could do. He took Callahan's religion away from him and then left him to live with that loss and that shame and that excommunication, basically. Right. Physically, could not enter a church. So, what is this man who is a priest? This man whose whole life revolves around his faith and and the church that he is a part of, now cannot have that connection. And it's about as devastating a thing as Barlow could have done. And the fact that Barlow probably knew this and knew he had he had an opportunity to to do this to Callahan because he's a priest. If if it were just Mark Petrie's dad, he did this too, it would be like. Eh, so what? I'll just go to work tomorrow. Right. So I can't go to church anymore. I didn't go that much anyway, whatever. But to do this to a priest is like, ah, uh, uh, this is, this is that extra special damnation that I, I can do just to priests.
1: Yeah. And he takes great pleasure in it. Mm-hmm. For him, it is a game. Yeah. Because Barlow's like, I've got the boy and I can kill the boy and I can walk, or I w- and walk out of here. I can make the bargain with you and I have a feeling you'll fail. Mm -hmm. he probably knows barlow that if things got bad he can turn to mist and nope out of there like the vampire did in the funeral home right when ben attacked it like he's got a ways out and i don't get the sense that barlow is a guy who's gonna always play by the rules if he needs to but i think he knows he's more powerful than callahan and so he's willing to do this and he he knows that and just to your point he's just sort of screwing it there that extra poke, you know, like I'm going to get you and I'm going to do things that you can't even imagine. Yeah. And to know that that Callahan could have done something. And what's great about this, even obviously King wrote this before he wrote The Dark Tower, but even knowing what I know was going to happen, it is still a suspenseful scene. Yeah, absolutely. I I was like, what is going to happen here? I don't quite, I like, I know that Callahan loses, but what what's really going to happen? Is Mark going to die along the way? Is it going to be, h- how's Barlow going to do this? Because uh, he's got the cross. And when you just see, as soon as that thought hits Callahan's mind, like, oh, my faith is wavering a little bit and the cross starts to lose its glow. You're like, oh no.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting point you made about that Barlow assumed that he was stronger than Callahan. And I wonder if some of that comes from There is this power that seems to emanate from faith in that symbol Mm -hmm. of the cross. And as you just said, like once Callahan's faith wavers, the cross loses all power, not just some, just it's all gone. Because he did the whole like, let's set aside our weapons and fight man to man kind of thing. And that's where he knew, faith or not, even if Callahan was the best priest ever and the most pure and The Pope. Yeah, let's say he was the Pope. The Pope. You know, he's got the vestments on and everything, the big hat. And he'd still, like, Barlow is older than the Catholic Church. Maybe that's what he's counting on. This is yet another human religion. This is yet another human construct that I've seen come and go during my lifetime. Yep. And yeah, this one's hung around for a couple thousand years, but I've been around longer than that. And as long as I can get him to set aside that cross, which perhaps has its own, I don't know, meaning beyond the church or something like that, Like then it's it's easy. It's, it, as long as it's me versus any other human being, even if that human being is a priest, always, I always win.
1: Yep. So Callahan loses, Barlow wins, and Mark is able to escape. But I don't even know if we're going to see Callahan the rest of the book. I sort of get the sense that not only has been purged out by Barlow, but like he was the man who, when we first met him, had this interior monologue about how he wanted to face off against not just evil, but big E evil. Mm-hmm. He missed the fact when the church was good and there was evil and he could face it off one-on-one and he relished that and he was tired of these small bore culture wars and he finally gets this opportunity and he fails on a grand stage and I sort of get the sense that Callahan's just going to sort of slink off into the night and not be seen from again because it's got to be not only hurtful to his faith but also to his pride right like this is what he wanted more than anything and yeah, gone like that
0: in a second <laughs> it's basically like closing credits to the Incredible Hulk TV show
2: yeah yeah
0: got the duffel bag hitchhiking
1: well we're right on the precipice here of a dark tower thinny, and we're sort of pushing into the dark tower so why don't we go into our dark tower thinnies
0: jay yes let's
1: so i'm gonna start off with you talked about how callahan has this great power Mm -hmm. he is able to barlow is fearful of the cross. At, he flinches. He's fearful of the cross at first. He backs away. He hisses. All the typical things you would see. So you you know Callahan's powerful. But we even get a, a preview of that when they enter the Martzen house and the door has been padlocked. I'm not sure who padlocked it because Stryker's dead, but the door's padlocked. I guess they came in through a door the other way. So
0: maybe- it, Or maybe it wasn't a padlock. Maybe it was just a dead bolt or yeah. whatever. But
1: Whatever the case, it's locked. They're trying to figure out, like, how, we, how are we going to break this down? We don't have a rogue in our party who can pick the lock. and right, we've got a cleric here. So Callahan comes up with his cross and, like, <laughs> he's, he actually smotes the lock, right? Like, bam. Yeah. There's, like, this burst of light and lock breaks open. And Callahan says, quote, this is, without a doubt, the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me in my life. And I was thinking, oh, you don't know the half of it, Callahan. There's
0: gonna be a lot more amazing things that happen to you along the way. Uh-huh. Yeah, you're gonna switch to different versions of Earth. <laughs> you're gonna carry around strange money. You're gonna live in a town called uh, called Wolves. Yeah, it's the town's called Wolves. Colibrin Sturgis. You're gonna see robots riding horses dressed up like Doctor Doom with lightsabers. Yeah, you don't know the half of it, my man. Uh-huh. This moment with Callahan just before his failure is very much echoed in Song of Susanna when he vanquishes, tries to vanquish the vampires in yep. the Dixie Pig. But he's instead of a cross, he's holding the sculpata. Mm-hmm. He has the scrimshaw turtle, and that is his symbol of power. That is something that represents Maturin, one of the 12 guardians. Yes. And he holds that up, and it shines brightly, and it scatters and keeps away not just the vampires, but all of those evil creatures. And there's an illustration in, in that book, or maybe it's at the beginning of book seven, that has Callahan holding up this bright spot of light above his head. And I picture him in the exact same pose with the exact same determination facing down Barlow in Mark Petrie's kitchen. Yep. And then that light going out and the vampire winning. It's good stuff. When you when you know both ends of that that story, yeah, it makes Callahan's story even better. Yep.
1: So we we talked about this briefly when Barlow sees him. He says Callahan bears the symbol of white. And he says his faith in the white is weak and soft. And we've already said, you know, white not only represents the chessboard. But also sort of that the white as goodness which we get in the Dark Tower, and also the Stand. That that is true. Also the Stand.
0: Maybe we should talk about
2: that
1: book someday. Maybe I wonder if there's any interest in that.
0: No, we'll find out. Another Dark Tower thingy that I I saw was that Father Callahan has a housekeeper in Salem's Lot. Her name's Rhoda Curless. She takes care of his household and worries about him when he's off galvanting around town, and in much the same way. Father Callahan has a housekeeper named Rosalita Munoz in when he's living in uh, Coloburn Sergis. So I don't know. Is that a thing that priests do? They just have housekeepers? Or is this something that... Is this an a idiosyncrasy of Callahan?
1: My aunt was actually a housekeeper for a Catholic church for a while. Okay. For the priests in their rectory, yes. I don't know if that's common. I know I don't think she had a relationship like Rosalita had with Father Callahan and... I'm not sure if she worried about them the same way Rhoda does, uh, Father Callahan in this book, but I don't
0: think it's maybe that quite unusual back back in the day. They even have similar first names, Rhoda and Ro- Rosalita. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. definitely connections here that King's making, I think. Yeah, I bet it, King never states it on the page, but I bet if you were to, in King's mind, maybe they even looked like the same yeah. people, like they were twinners. I wouldn't be surprised. At some point Ben seemed to feel a weight settle onto his
1: neck as if in a curious way he sensed the more than chance coming together of their lives.
0: That sounds like the form mm. of a ca-tet. ka. It sure does. Yes. Speaking of ka, I kind of saw Ben having a twinner in Mark a little bit. Mm. And in kind of the same way that there's sort of a generational twinner in the dark tower between Cuthbert and Eddie. They're not generationally connected to each other, but they're sort of duplications of one another. Right. In Roland's life, he has a very close friend, Cuthbert, and he has a very uh, specific personality and and other traits. And Eddie is so much like Cuthbert later in Roland's life that Roland can't stop comparing the two. Mm. There's something about how Ben is kind of like an older version of Mark. They've had a lot of similar experiences. They both have had brief parts of their childhood in Salem's Lot. They both have had terrible experiences in the Marston house. They both saw a figure hanging from a rope in the house. There's just a lot of overlap in their experiences and in the way that they handle them and how they kind of just find that steel and inner strength to stand up to these experiences. I just saw a lot of parallels and it made me think of the Eddie Cuthbert thing. So, Yeah, that is a lot,
1: a lot stronger Thinny than this next one. When Ann Norton is able to, um, she's in, invading the hospital because she's going to try to take out the rest of the, the group during the daytime. King describes it as, Ann Norton drew the thirty eight from the pocket of a wrapper, like some creaky gunslinger from beyond time. Ann Norton is nowhere near a gunslinger creaky or not no i sense even a creaky old roland gunslinger would still be fast on the draw and not let some dude just walking around behind him
0: like take her down well for like almost two books roland is a creaky old gunslinger he's got bonitis and uh (laughs) he's got a missing fingers on one hand and true he is still super deadly (laughs) and aware of his surroundings i think i think we've
1: determined you and i in our reading of the dark tower that The main trait of the gunslinger is not necessarily his ability to shoot the gun. Mm. It's his perception, his awareness, his understanding of the situation and how to deal with it. Right. The guns are a tool to make that happen, but they are not necessarily the main trait of the gunslinger. Yes. And Norton has none of that.
0: No. (laughs) No. And to be fair, she is under the thrall of a vampire, but she fails in her task. Mm -hmm. I mean, to just add insult to that, it's like the people who subdue her are unnamed strangers in the story (laughs) it's not even anyone we've been introduced to it's literally a random hospital visitor who sees a lady who looks a little disheveled and who pulls out a gun and he's like uh i i I should be a good samaritan and try to help out this crazy situation
1: and the whole time he's like what kind of place are you running here yeah i mean really what kind of place are you running here it just seems so weird
0: It just it's like you know, if this were a movie adaptation, it'd be like unnamed character, like or or it would be guy who shrugs a lot, you know, <laughs> in the in the credits. Like what? <laughs> What's going on here? Another dark tower thingy that I found was an interesting line: "The house loomed without purpose. The last of its evil stolen away. It was just a house again." We're referring here to the Marston House after all the vampires have left it, and it's now just bricks, mortar, wood, whatever it's made of. It's not an evil thing anymore. And that reminded me a lot of the house that Jake had to basically survive Mm. the demon house in the wastelands. He goes through that house and the house destroys itself in its attempt to capture and kill Jake. And because Jake does not lose that battle, because he does vanquish that house, that house becomes nothing but rubble by the time it's done. It's not just a house, it's, but it's nothing. It's not what it used to be, and its power seems to be diminished, if not entirely gone. Yep. I saw a parallel there.
1: I think they make a point of saying that Callahan blesses the house and spreads holy water over it to mm. undesecrate it again, because they, they, yeah. they note that it's desecrated ground. And at that point, Callahan's a believer, so I guess it works. It'd be interesting to see if he tried to do it when he came back now that his face has been shattered. But at that point, it worked.
0: I'm sure it worked because he was able to smote the lock. Yeah. But I bet he couldn't go back in the house now. No. Nope. Probably not. It's like, but I'm the one who locked
1: it. It is Matt Burke who makes another point that part of how Barlow must have come to life, they're sort of trying to piece together the timeline of the sacrifices that had to have been made to make Barlow happen and how the Glick Boy was the first one and the first initial feeding and all this back and forth. But what's interesting is he says, there's another thing that started and that was ahead of time, the dog that was drained of its blood. Mm -hmm. The milkman's dog. And here we understand that it's because of the dog's markings. There's lore about vampires that this dog has like an extra set of white patches above its eyes that are almost like a second set of eyes. And this would in some way scare away vampires. And so that's why that dog had to be sacrificed. And it reminded me also that there is a dog in Little Sisters that has unusual markings that of a cross on its chest that also is used to scare away vampires. And so, yeah. you know, King must just love dogs. Oh, of course he does. They're yeah. the heroes of all these stories. These are not the thing of evil like his current dog.
0: No. <laughs> he invented Oi, or at least he he made Oi in a kind of a, a mirror image of his dog. Corgi-like creature. Exactly. And uh, one final Dark Tower thingy is... There's a line, there's a line, you have forgotten the doctrine of your own church. Is it not so? And this is Barlow talking to Callahan. You have forgotten the doctrine of your own church. There's a lot there that sounds like you've forgotten the face of your father. Yep. The father is God.
1: Oh. I think he's talking to you. Lots of good Dark Tower thinnies here yeah tons. I'm worried that now that Callahan is potentially leaving the story that we might not have more in the future, but I'm sure we'll be able to find something,
0: yeah, even if they're kind of on the thin side. We'll still find some spinnies
1: so before we move to fun stuff, why don't we give a shout out to our patron? We started the patron program a few weeks ago, and we wanted to take some time to to thank our patrons, especially this week, which is uh, thank your patrons
0: week. Our latest patron is Kimberly W, who has joined at the gunslinger. Level. Thank you, Kimberly. For those of you who are patrons, thank you again. And for those of you who are considering it but aren't sure what's in it for you, we are making a bunch of bonus episodes like the one that we recently released talking about Carrie the Musical. Patrons also get other benefits like being thanked on an episode, just like our latest patron, Kimberly W. We'll also put your name on our website to thank you there. Depending on which level of patron you are, you will also get to guide us on which books we cover in future episodes. That's right. I think we've gotten some good feedback
1: on our Carry the Musical episode. It was a, it was a fun one to do for Jay and I. Yeah. A reminder that you can support the show and become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower, and that link is in our show notes. Yep. All right. So I'm going to start off fun stuff, Jay, with a little um, English lesson. I learned a whole bunch of new words in this uh, section of the book that I, I wanted to look up because they they were interesting to me. So there's psychopompose, the spiritual guide of a living person's soul. It's a nice one. Mm. And then we get a, me being a bad Catholic, uh, a whole bunch of uh, <laughs> religious words like surplice, a loose white linen vestment varying from hip length to calf length, worn over a cassock by clergy, acolytes. And choristers at Christian church services, and of course Callahan's wearing that.
0: Now I'm going to have to look up chorister. (laughs) Thanks. I think it's somebody who
1: sings, obviously, right, in the choir. Uh, I'm going to guess that's true. And then uh, he is holding in the car as they're heading to the Marston house a pyx, P-Y-X, which is a container in which the consecrated bread of the Eucharist is kept. I think I probably mm. figured that one out, out of, or within context, but I still looked it up. And then finally, we talked a little bit earlier about how he smote the lock, and that provided some efflugence, which is brightness taken to the extreme or radiant splendor. Ooh. Thanks, King, for expanding my knowledge. I don't think I'm going to have much use for any of those four words in my everyday conversation, but I'm glad I know them nonetheless.
0: Well, you could tell somebody that their psycho pompous is filling the room with effulgence. <laughs> I could. And they'll say, screw you, buddy. <laughs> Why aren't you speaking American? So another fun stuff I had was a line, his eye fell on something in the corner of the confessional, and he picked it up curiously. It was an empty junior mince box. So... This is the bit of reality that Ben kind of fixated on in the confessional booth, this thing that he saw that kind of stood out and he picked it up and held onto it so tightly while he was making his first and only ever confession because he's not a Catholic. And it was just kind of caught off guard by the fact that of anything that King could have imagined to be in this confessional booth, any foreign item, he chose a junior mince box. The only place I ever see junior mints is in the movie theater and that made me think that like somebody in King's mind was previously in this church and in this confessional and was basically treating it like he was or she was at the movies. It just seems so anachronistic. And I know King's not a Catholic either but I think he knows Catholic traditions a little bit better than this. You're not even supposed to eat any food less than an hour before you receive communion so the idea of a catholic eating any snacks of any kind even a movie theater kind (laughs) in church just really reads wrong to me i'm not offended by it i just think king could have picked something anything else really and it would have worked just as well and it wouldn't have distracted me by pulling me out of the story thinking no one's going to eat Junior Mints in a confessional. Like, oh, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. I'm currently eating Junior Mints. <laughs> <laughs> How many Hail Marys do I have to say now?
1: Well, probably not that many. I mean, Ben Mears does his first confession, and he only gets 10 Hail Marys and 10 Our Fathers, which seems a little light for somebody who, in 30 years on Earth, has got to confess all his sins. But yeah, what yeah. Do I, know?
0: I guess it could have been worse. It could have been Milk Duds. <laughs>
1: So you're right, whenever I think of Junior Mints, I also think of the movie theater, which is interesting because in this section, there were lots of pop culture references, as there have been throughout this book, and you know, sort of a king trait. But I find the characters consistently referring to pop culture almost as a way to deal mm. with what they're going through and how the only way they can sort of put into words what's happening to them is re- referencing other things. So we have Matt referencing the Seventh Seal. At one point, uh, the, uh-huh. the 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 Bergman move me, and later on, I think it's here. Ben quotes from Dracula: "We must go through bitter waters before we reach the sweet." And elsewhere, Callahan references the movies by saying, "You know, I'd I'd believe this vampire story much better if you could have arranged for a thunderstorm and power failure. You know, like a typical horror movie. Mm-hmm. All of these ways, it's it's almost like that's the only way." that these characters can, to, can deal with what's happening is by referencing other pop culture. So the Junior Mints sort of brought that out for me
0: as well. I guess looking at it from that perspective, maybe that was quite intentional. I could put anything here. I'm going to make it something pop culture-y. Maybe. Either that or he, he got some uh, product placement money <laughs> from the Junior Mints company. In the, the scene before Mark escapes, just before Callahan loses his faith, Barlow kills Mark's parents and Mark is able to leave but before he does he turns and he spits in Barlow's face and the whole paragraph is just that one line Mark spit in his face and when I read that I was like whoa Mark is a fucking gunslinger the sheer gumption that he had I mean like I kind of feel like he's gonna be Barlow's biggest problem Mm. it's not ben it's it's not the priest it's not matt it's it's gonna be mark mark is the one right it's the thing that pierces barlow's facade
2: yeah
1: the letter that we get is this you get the sense that it's a high class ah yes i will deal with the priest and i will deal with you know this and when he faces off against callahan it's this you think we're equals, but I'm much further ahead of you. And I've thought this through and he's doing this with the velvet glove, right? He's very much, Mm -hmm. I get the sense that he's smiling all the time. It's odd because it's not the way he seems to be. When we were talking about last episode, about how he talks about how, you know, I'm just a local bumpkin and I don't know anything about these cities, but here he seems a much more erudite high class type of person. The way he's doing it with a smile on his face as he tears your throat out. Yep. But when Mark spits in his face, you see that facade go away and he just gets angry beyond belief. I'm going to get you. I'm going to make you undead. You're going to be a castrati. I'm going to take your man. Like all of that stuff. That spit in his face is just over the top and you do get that. Yep. It is really
0: badass for Mark to do this. Uh huh. And another moment that really made me say, whoa, was during the moment when. Ben is driving the stake through Susan's vampire heart. The moment that she as the vampire is finally destroyed the line, the scream that welled from the sounding chamber of that gaping mouth came from all the subcellars of deepest race memory and beyond that to the moist darkness of the human soul. Yeah. Just like King's almost making the, the inner recesses of the human psyche to this like Cthulhu level of grandiosity. This is not just a person crying out in anguish. This was the almost time out of mind ancientness of the vampire. Whatever it is that the disease or the magic or or the thing that makes this undead person a vampire, that's what was dying. That's what was crying out, coupled with the sorrow of the last vestige of Susan the human. Kind of winking out of existence as well, right? It's like a lot going on there, and uh, King expressed it quite well.
1: And at the same time that
0: King is able to write
1: these sort of deep, dark, existential horror lines, he's also able to fit in something like this: Henry Petrie, Mark's dad, who seems like he's been waiting for Reagan to come. Right? This is the mid seventies, and he's mm-hmm. talking about how he wants to put his economic theories into place, and how Nixon wasn't a bad man, and We just need to get through to the 80s. And he is the kind of man who balled his socks before his wife. And I will admit that I didn't get it the first time because the first time (laughs) I was thinking he was the type of guy who in front of his wife, he would ball up his socks before getting into bed with her or whatever. But he meant the, the double entendre here that he would ball his socks before he would ball his wife. And when I got that, I'm like, oh, yeah, at times... King could be very crude and very uh, immature, <laughs> and I love that as much about him as I do the horror stuff.
0: Absolutely, my first uh, pass on that was that it was just a man who balls his socks before his wife, as though like you know when she's there, just watching it happen. Like, oh, I am before I am before you. Yeah, I'm in front of you, balling my socks. This is who I am. And then I will put them in the hamper. I will take your socks, and I will put them in the hamper. <laughs> nope.
1: He balls his socks before his wife. Good stuff. All right. Well, on that note, that's going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And to support the show, visit patreon.com slash Tower. Next episode, join us as we cover Salem's Lot, Part 3, Chapter 14, Sections 25 through 50 and chapter 15. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. The
2: the
1: second epigraph is from Edgar Allan (laughs) Plo... Edgar Allan Poe.
2: Edgar Allan Poe. It just goes on and on. <laughs>